I'm Robbie McDonald. And I'm Jordan Lee. We're two writers who've been friends for 15 years. Recently, we both discovered we have the shared experience of figuring out we have ADHD in midlife. Holy Shit, I Have ADHD is a platform for adults discovering their neurodivergence, as well as a way to spread awareness of ADHD. This is a podcast about ADHD, hosted by two people with ADHD. While each episode has a general theme, our meandering trains of thought mean we often cover several other themes in the process. We are not experts, simply two people sharing their experiences of discovering their ADHD in midlife. If you suspect you or someone you know may have ADHD, speaking to a medical professional should be part of your discovery journey. Welcome to Holy Shit, I Have ADHD, a podcast about learning your neurodiversion in adulthood. My name is Jordan Lane. And I'm Robbie McDonald. And joining us today is Dmitry Pushkarev, CEO and founder of Sidekick Browser. Sidekick is billed as the first productivity browser for ADHD community and busy online professionals with a host of features designed to keep distractible people on task. So we'll get into Sidekick a little bit later in the show. For now, uh, I want to get to know Dmitry a little bit. So Dmitry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, guys. So I guess, uh, uh, you know, you've got a pretty impressive resume um, with time at, at Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, Sidekick came through Y Combinator. And, you know, we hear a lot about um, how ADHD people often kind of make great CEOs and entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and I guess I'm kind of curious how uh, you learned and, and came to find out that you have ADHD. I think it was kind of quite obvious from childhood basically all the way through high school, which grades weren't that amazing, and then in college, and, and then in grad school, you clearly see that you are different than some, some other people in your ability to focus, and then that also you have an ability to be extremely productive if you can build an environment around you. So uh, it was kind of obvious at the time, but then it was never kind of really appropriate to get a diagnosis, because basically in the country where I lived, uh, up until I was 20, I was actually born in Russia and I lived um, there first 20 years before moving to the States. Going to psychiatrist was kind of a no-no. Basically, if you go to psychiatrist, you would most likely never get a, a real job. Like you would not be able to work in government, you would not be able to take different roles in uh, legal systems. So to get a diagnosis was of not something that we would ever discussed. And only kind of after moving to the States, uh, it was uh, kind of for the first time I was able to talk to, to a specialist and then we actually discussed what can be done about it. So for like a decade ago, actually, uh, a decade ago, I actually find out that uh, it's uh, it's real. <laughs> it exists. Right. I'm just curious um, because this is a big part of the discussion for folks with ADHD and I've been through this um, myself. Um, how medication has played into your process and your journey. For some people, it's magic. For other people, it doesn't work. And I've had a little bit of both. So could you talk a little bit about that? So I tried some of that and had some prescriptions. Uh, the challenge for me was that even though it definitely helps you focus, the downside was just too difficult for me. Basically, you get all kind of excited, agitated, and then you kind of spend the next couple of days recovering from this. And when it comes to uh, kind of focused work and especially creative work. I was in, in academia for nearly a decade. Basically, when you really have to think, not just kind of build slides or write text, then it really didn't work for me that well. So my kind of choice was that let's try to replace this with something else, maybe with sports, maybe with a uh, different diet, but stay away from uh, medication, which is actually, uh, in my case, it's just uh, 
you know, slow release methamphetamine, which also kind of didn't really ring a bell with me. So my choice was to kind of build a world, world around me in a way that helps me stay away from, from uh, medication. That totally makes sense um, because it is like it isn't for everybody, right? And sometimes you just have to create the systems that will help you to be able to survive in this wackadoodle world we're operating in. <laughs> and especially the high pressure of somewhere like Silicon Valley, too, where it's just like deadlines and launches and crunching and crunching and crunching. I can see how that would lead to burnout for you pretty quickly if you didn't have systems of support in place. Well, I think it was actually much easier in the Silicon Valley than it was in academia in some ways. Because basically, in academia, you're faced to write this huge paper for the next uh, you know, year. And you basically look at this uh, blank sheet of paper, and you don't know where to start. And kind of this pressure and uh, anxiety was a lot more difficult than uh, for me than being a CEO, for example. One of the greatest things I discovered while being a CEO is that you can actually form a team around yourself. You can find the people with very complementary skills, people who enjoy planning, people who enjoy task management um, and project management. Not, 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 not only good at that, but they also enjoy it. I would never be able to do with any degree of success. And that's a kind of unique uh, ability, which most people actually don't have. Most people don't choose people they work with. It uh, gives you a chance to really unleash your superpower. I think that's why we're seeing so many uh, people with ADHD across the entrepreneurs. But basically, it is by being able to, ch to choose their team or being able to kind of invite people with complementary skills, they're now able to fully express themselves and actually build something of value. Uh, so in my view, everything before entrepreneurship was, like, was, was more difficult than being a kind of a CEO and founder, even though it does come with a certain stress. Sometimes. That's really interesting. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious about something. You talked a little bit there about how, uh, you know, that kind of uh, taking that time for, I guess, deep focus or, or deep thinking was really kind of critical in academia because you had to, you know, have these these periods to really suss out a pretty heavy idea. Um, and I'm curious, uh, you know, so I turned 40 last year and as I've gotten older, I've noticed myself uh, becoming more and more distractible and and finding it much more difficult to get into that deep focus mode. Whereas, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I had no problem uh, getting into science books and things like that for hours on end. And I'm kind of curious uh, whether, what your thoughts on uh, as whether that's part of aging or whether that's, you know, as technology advances and we get things like smartphones and social media, and, you know, if you've had similar experiences in your life with your level of distractibility. Well, I'm really not a specialist in that case. I think it definitely has to do with uh, kind of more and more stimuli that, that we're seeing. For example, even kind of 10 years ago in, in academia, you can still pretty much close all the you know all the apps, all the you know cell phones, laptop, and then kind of get the paper and read it for you know for an hour or so. These days, I'm I'm not able to afford that. I have you know family, friends, uh, messengers, work, and it's uh, all over the place. I think each of those notifications, they kind of trigger those neural circuits. They become more and more uh, used to being triggered. And as a result, you're getting overwhelmed with uh, stimuli. And I think that's, that's a big part of it. Like what I did back at Stanford was basically try activities that get you into flow state. For example, things like cycling, 
martial arts, swimming. But basically, you, you really cannot focus on anything than, other than what you're doing right now. And this training uh, over time did actually did help. It, I mean, it did not completely solve the problem. I still cannot, you know, sit for five hours to meditate. It's not really a possibility, <laughs> even though some people, some people can. Uh, but but it definitely uh, did help. I think partially because of that, I realized that my career in academia will never be successful. Like, I cannot sit like other people and just work on the paper for eight hours straight. It's just not who I am. And as a result of all this being less successful, so I kind of had to leave academia because of that uh, and not try to compete in the field where you are destined to fail. And uh, building, building companies and products turned out to be a place where I felt a lot more comfortable. So playing playing to your strengths, right? Like, like that's something that a lot of ADHD folks talk about. It's like, why why do we focus so much on the things we can't do instead of the places and things that put us into that flow state where we can create and, you know, make all kinds of wonderful things. And instead we spend, I have spent so much of my life lamenting not being more organized or more structured or being able to sit through eight hour meetings, which were kind of an ordeal, right. not that they were eight hours total, but you, you know what I mean? I'm exaggerating, which is another ADHD thing. Um, but yeah, I just think that's a really interesting point to make that uh, playing to your strengths is it can really result in success. Um, if, if you well, allow it. Right. And it also gives you less anxiety. Basically, when you see yourself fail constantly at, you know, your history class and your geography class and places where you have to remember things, and you kind of start to think maybe I'm not just different, I'm you know, less smart, maybe even stupid. It creates a lot of pressure on you, especially as, uh, like, you did uh, for me in high school. And uh, after you can realize that, you know, maybe just not your thing. Just, you know, ignore it. Maybe history is not something that you should care about. Uh, or at least you know, being a good student at history, maybe just kind of do things that you enjoy. Uh, build computers and then uh, build products. And that kind of uh, decision really, uh, in many ways, changed my life for the better. Like being able to choose what to work on and, and kind of enjoying definitely changed the quality of life. Like if I was, for example, if I had to be a consultant for a big four, it would be a disaster. It would have never worked. It would be like the worst career path I would have chosen. And I know some people with ADHD who, who tried that, and that's always a difficult situation. So can you tell us about kind of um, transitioning out from academia into the corporate world? Well, it wasn't a straight line. Basically, while working in academia, we discovered a new method for DNA sequencing. And we kind of thought, you know, if we just kind of stay at Stanford, it would only be used by a bunch of scientists like ourselves. It would never be accessible to other people because it needs to be productized. So we actually wanted to build a biotech startup that commercialized this technology and then made it available for everyone. And eventually the company got a call and I joined a bigger company in, in the research role. And sooner or later, this, this led me to join, uh, actually building another company in the Valley, which was then also acquired by Amazon. And I kind of found myself in a very strange role. I basically ended up running the supply side of Amazon search advertising. Wow. And uh, that was, uh, it's a 
it's a huge business. It's probably one of the biggest uh, businesses that Amazon has. But it also kind of put me in a very strange spot because I was now working to monetize users' attention. And I was now mm. figuring out how to place you know, things on the website or, or in search such that you won't get distracted from uh, what you're looking for and get something else. Maybe you're looking for you know, a toaster. And now through ads, I would recommend you to buy a high mar higher margin product. Maybe you'll kind of buy a, a vacuum, which you probably don't need at this point, but it just got there by chance. And that was kind of interesting, uh, a moral, ch moral challenge. On one hand, I really enjoyed the business opportunity and challenge, kind of being able to work with hundreds of people in uh, those different verticals. But on the, on the other hand, knowing that I'm actually playing against myself, knowing that I'm actually exploiting patterns that made my life not as easy as it could have been. So that didn't last for very long. At some, at some point, I said, you know, maybe it's enough. Maybe I should kind of stop doing that and actually maybe do something about this instead, which is where I joined. Um, I actually, I left Amazon uh, following that and joined a venture fund called Glenna Perkins to figure out ways how to address this problem. I think that was back in 2018 or so. And, and one of the kind of things that we realized early on is that probably the number one kind of source of distraction that we have in our life is uh, basically the, the tool we use every single day, which is a, a web browser. I didn't know that at the time, but uh, it turned out browsers make money by getting a, a cut of search revenue. So for example, your you know, Opera, Safari, Firefox are being paid by Google every time you search online for anything. And in many ways, their business model is built upon distracting you from work, from focused work, from concentration, and having you go into random search binge. And that's why I find yourself for the morning looking for some weird uh, you know, article about history of uh, Pakistani camels, for example. And, that's, and that by itself is pretty uh, pretty scary. Like you have you know, a billion people working in tools designed to sell your attention to highest bidder or to search engines. And um, I think for most people, it's just inconvenient. It's, uh, you, know, you get less focused, you get less done, you get more tired. But for those of us with ADHD, it's actually a real challenge. I know people who cannot focus for more than five minutes working in the browser, because it was something that will take their attention away. They will Google something and then go into a very kind of tangential search. I think for me, it's one of the uh, one of the bigger opportunities that we could tackle, and that's what why we started Sidekick uh, to build a much better environment for work and focus than uh, you will get from normal browsers. And unfortunately, or fortunately. The only way to make it happen is to change the business model, is to focus on bringing value to customers and not trying to sell their attention or distract them. So that was kind of my transition. Yeah, I think this, this is a good, speaking of transitions, a good time to start talking about the browser itself. But uh, before we do that, um, I think, you know, I think that that's really interesting what you've, uh, what you were just talking about, about the kind of 
the moral quandary of of designing and building these Skinner boxes, even though they're they're quite interesting. Uh, you know, you you also understand the bad side of them, and so um, that's that's really interesting that you have that perspective from the other side of the the equation that you brought into then um, kind of minimizing distractibility in Sidekick. So Sidekick, you've got uh, tools like AdBlock Two, a uh, focus mode timer, um, which kind of disables everything to help with Pomodoros and whatnot, which there also is a Pomodoro timer built in. Uh, there's like a task manager scheduler um, and, you know, all sorts of other things to kind of keep people on task. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear you talk about the process of putting Sidekick together and, uh, and yeah, and I guess kind of, kind of sell Robbie and I on it if you'd like to. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's a hard one. Well, well basically we kind of started to think about what uh, is wrong with the browser and mostly in context of work. And we turned out that uh, browsers, first of all, UX-wise, is not well-designed for work in general. Like having a hundred tabs open at any given time is just a disaster. And it, it's actually something that you don't notice normally, but your brain latches to those kind of icons and tabs and persons them every single second. So you have all those neural networks that uh, recognize those tabs firing up all the time. And as long as you have this clutter all around you, it that not only makes you more distractible, it also makes you a lot more tired. And you, you can only notice that in comparison. For example, working for a, for a few days in Psychic and then going back to Chrome, those things uh, definitely come to light. So we're going to change that by building browser around applications. Because most of us use apps, not, not tabs for research, which is use, use things like messengers, your Gmails, Notions, Slacks, and, and such. And that makes it for a very clean tab strip. You actually don't have 100 tabs. But in, in point, the second big thing was to really focus on speed and uh, performance. Like Chrome has been designed for um, browsing. And on average, people have five or six tabs open. Uh, on the browse. When you do any, any actual work, you have a lot more than that open. And Chrome tends to slow down a bit. And again, for most people, it's not a big deal. For people with ADHD who kind of tend to work in the super drive mode, every extra 100 millisecond is your chance to open YouTube and go on a entirely tangential uh, in the research which was the case for me. And uh, I thought, you know, we have to make a browser much faster. And fortunately, at the same time, we could make it also more private. So we spent quite some time researching how to analyze which requests are important for the page to render and which requests are basically just there to sell your data. Like if you open, let's say, cnn.com, you will actually block more than half of the requests. Because more than half of them go to random trackers, random endpoints that collect your fingerprints, your IP address, and those and basically bring no value for the page. It doesn't change what you see. And by being able to block them and to manage memory in a better way, you can get to a much faster experience. Uh, there was a fun story. Uh, I think last year, uh, we got an email from a village from Nepal. They're saying, hey, guys, well, uh, we have very old laptops. They're fairly slow, and your browser is the only thing that can run on them. Can, like, can you uh, give us a free license? <laughs> you know, maybe we're doing something reasonable in that regard. Full disclosure: I, I started using the browser um, when um, 
we first started having this conversation on Gmail because I was super curious about it. And I have already noticed um, I'm less prone to my sort of rabbit hole um, compulsion where I would have like multiple tabs open to do quote research where I wouldn't even read the full context that was on the page anyway, or I would just be checking whatever I'd be doing. It was like always taking me away from what it was that I meant to be doing which would be, you know, writing something or whatever, working on something. Every time that happens, like you spoke about that, I think really well, is that every time we're pulled off one task, all that energy that could have been going into the task gets into this other thing. And task switching, as we know, as ADHD folks, is like our kryptonite. It's like you're into, into focus and you get pulled off that, well, now you're doing the laundry instead of writing the blog post or whatever it is. Right. But I, I think this browser is really neat and I haven't even tapped into the full potential of it. Like using things like the split, the split screen and the Pomodoro, the Pomodoro, I always pronounce that wrong timer. So yeah, I, I, you know, this isn't a, obviously this isn't an advertorial, but I'm really stoked about it so far. I think there's a lot of potential um, for folks like me that have always struggled with having way too many tabs open. Um, so yeah, that's, that's more just a little piece of praise of what I've learned so far, just using it for three weeks. Thank you. Well, I'll also throw my two cents in because, uh, I've been using it as well. And, um, yeah, I, I've been really enjoying it. Uh, the one, just one thing though, that I found really funny about your last note about those, those people in Nepal, um, I rescued a laptop out of the garbage a couple weeks ago, uh, from I think 2007 or something. And, uh, you know, the only thing it can run is really like Linux mint and same thing. Sidekick is one of the, it's the fastest browser by far on that old machine. So, uh, I thought you might get a kick out of that as well. <laughs> Actually, there was an article a couple of days ago uh, from Chrome OS community, and basically they said that the Sidekick is the best OS for Chromebooks, which again, really? <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but uh, at least someone uh, felt that. I mean, really, there's been a lot of kind of efforts put into how to design a much better experience, and also we thought a lot about things that distract you. Uh, many of our ideas actually came from our users. Uh, this idea of distraction blocker. Uh, seemed ridiculous to me at the time. So, you know, I almost discarded it immediately. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Why would you have browser redirect you from your YouTube to your Gmail? It makes no sense. If I open, if I want to open YouTube, uh, I don't want to have Gmail pop up. Uh, but then, as I thought about that more, it actually it's a brilliant solution. I have a very compulsive uh, tendency to open my you know Instagram, YouTube, or Facebook. And then if I, when I use bloggers in the past, I'll get very upset. I'll actually blog the website and I'll have to delete them after a few days. And now with Distraction Blogger, it basically sends me from YouTube to my Gmail, where I actually get to do productive work and get uh, dopamine from actually getting stuff done. And that really works. And I keep this feature uh, always on and uh, that really change my productivity dramatically and kind of some of those things they will look ridiculous at the the phone but actually behind them um, there's very good suggestions that be implemented uh, like a built-in task tracker uh, it's not available yet i think it will be out in a couple of weeks but basically you can now select any text and then can create a quick task so that basically you can then go back to the page where it was. So, so someone sends an email asking for 
for documents. In the trade right now, you just can select this text, create new task, and then you have a task to send this document that points back to your, uh, your emails. That's super convenient. You don't have to figure out where things are. And every time you can save a few mental cycles of useless work, you get a few more extra mental cycles for something helpful and useful. And you, get, and you feel a lot less tired in the end. You don't have to you know, shut down at six. You can get more stuff done and maybe spend more quality time with your family, which again is also very important, especially as you get older like us. Um, actually, split, you mentioned split view. That's also kind of thing that I use a lot. And I think as this kind of you know, experience with uh, being a, if a founder can show me being able to configure an environment for you and make it work exactly like you like is very important. And, and Split View for me allows to integrate a bunch of different tools that can be accessed with a single shortcut. They don't change the whole screen, they don't uh, replace the content, they kind of supplement it. So you can, for example, you're working on an article. You press option four, here's your chat GPT. You ask a question, you close it, then you back to your content. You don't have to make those large context switches and they take quite a bit of mental energy. And uh, I think the way I can measure our success is basically whether or not I feel less tired than a decade ago. And the answer is definitely yes. I think that's, uh, in fact, you know, what's, what I found really kind of Curious is that our users talk about psychic less in terms of productivity and more of using kind of words that you would normally hear from a mental health app. Mm. They become less overwhelmed, uh, more relaxed, more confident, uh, more happy in some ways. So I think that's kind of that's kind of hard to measure subconscious things that you get after you after you actually and free your mind from distractions. And it's especially clear with people with ADHD. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, because um, we were talking about distractions before, and, and so, you know, uh, obviously for people who work in, in you know, white-collar professions, the bulk of their workday is going to be at the computer. But I'm curious, like, uh, if you've learned anything from developing this browser and, and your own kind of study into distraction that uh, has kind of helped you out in terms of when you're away from the computer. Like, I, I find that I still get, you know, if I'm uh, I'll start to make a pot of coffee and then I'll notice some, my laundry hamper and I'll, okay, well, I'll throw a load in. And then two hours later, I look at the stove and see there's still this like pot of coffee with the spoon beside it or whatever. Like, oh, right. I was going to make a pot of coffee a while ago. And I'm, I'm curious if, if there's anything that you've kind of, uh, found out through your research that's kind of helped you with the real life stuff like that and not just the computer distractions. I can't say I found anything, uh, that really works, man. My kind of offline life is still a mess. And uh, I think uh, a big part of it is my cell phone. Unfortunately, as a, as a CEO, you kind of have to be online uh, and reply to emails within minutes. And this is a constant source of distraction. I think one thing that I try to do every single day, I don't touch my cell phone for the first two hours of the day. I have some time to, you know, to plan my day, to reflect, uh, do some sports, get in the shower and then I really force myself to not touch the cell phone because this will just kind of start this unbelievable mess. Uh, 
I think other thing that I found that works is the diet. Just kind of watching really carefully what you eat uh, and um, kind of trying to avoid, you know, for me, kind of dairy, coffee, meats. Um, that definitely affects my mood a lot and then me being distracted. Um, and fourth, if, <laughs> if and when I find time to do sports, I try to do it, especially sports that involve uh, uh, this kind of flow state. Like you know, like surfing, like snowboarding, like kite surfing, that definitely mm -hmm. helps you train your mind to be focused on the present moment and not just being all around. Yeah, um, and I mean, we all know that our cell phones. You know, I don't know if you're an Apple um, or an Android user, but are so uniquely addictive the way they're laid out. And even with the new changes, I find it just so much easier to go directly down a rabbit hole. So I do something similar to you where I just try not to even have it on me, but I have um, hearing aids that have AI uh, technology in them and the app is on my phone. So I'm kind of tethered to it in a way for that one thing, because they're turned up too loud in the morning and I have to turn them down on my phone before I can go function in the world. Um, and then I have to like literally put my phone away so I don't, you know, check my email or whatever. Um, so I do think that is um, really interesting that you know that. And this may be an odd question. It's just something I've noticed as I've been watching you talk while we're um, while we're chatting. The bracelets that you have on your arm, are they somehow connected to the work that you're doing? Or is that like, I just, I can't help but noticing them. Is there oh, something those, significant? Uh, no, no, unfortunately not. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that really helped me work is engaging in activities that get you into deep flow state. And I've been a kind of techno DJ for the past, uh, past de decade. I go to different places, different festivals, and some of the most precious festivals that I, I play at, actually, I still carry them with me as a reminder. That's so, so it's not, cool. So it's very much an offline thing. Oh, okay. But yeah, so you, so in addition to your many other talents, you like to like drop a few sweet beats here and there. Is that? <laughs> we do. Right? Yeah. It's, it's my basically, that's what my weekends are for. And uh, again, the ability to stay for three hours in the flow state and being completely with the with the crowd, with the music, with yourself is I see it as a very valuable training. It trains your mind to be in that state and know how to get back to it. So yeah. Do do you DJ under your own name or do you have a DJ <laughs> name? Actually, can we point people to your your I was gonna say MySpace. That shows my age right there. <laughs> Yes, it's actually Dr. Dr. Pushkarev at SoundCloud, but uh, I actually don't post there as much. Excellent. Yeah, I, I was just curious because, yeah, I so I've been a musician my whole life, uh, mostly a drummer, but I only really started to learn to DJ in quarantine. Uh, I've been a drum and bass fan for a long time, and so that's kind of what I mostly focus on. And, yeah, it's it's been very interesting to come at that as you know as a listener of music and as a musician but djing is almost like it kind of combines the two in a way because you're working with someone else's source material uh but there's still a performance aspect to it and yeah that's that's been one of those things where 
you know, you'll, you'll just get into mixing and having fun. And then before you know it, two hours have passed. And, and it's really easy to kind of find yourself in that, in that flow state and kind of come out feeling energized and, and ready to do another thing. So that's, um, yeah, that's, that's really cool to hear that, uh, that, you know, you're into that side of things too. Well, for me, it was definitely a big discovery that you can stay in the flow and in the zone for hours on end. I think the longest set I've played was like five plus hours. Wow. And I really didn't notice that. I think it was kind of Burning Man 2019 or something. Uh, you know, like, you can suddenly realize there's, there's sunset and it started around 1 a.m. Like, you know, wow. what happened? And being, uh, and staying so, so much time without distractions was kind of fairly uh, eye-opening. Eye yeah, that's yeah. maybe another profession that I would, <laughs> I would recommend for someone with ADHD because so much focus and gives on the music, on the crowd, on the um, performance aspect, yeah. Yeah, and, and not just even on that, but, you know, you've got, there's there's a, a an outlet for people to go down hyper-focused research rabbit holes, learning about different kinds of music from different parts of the world in different eras and things. Um, yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm kind of going back to something we talked about up top. You know, you said that you, uh, before you, you came to the States and, and got diagnosed and everything, you suspected for a long time that you did have ADHD. And so for Robbie and I, it came as, as a pretty big surprise. We were both kind of blindsided by, uh, you know, being suggested that we have it and then subsequently diagnosed. And so for us, there was a big kind of process of getting to know ourselves again and and kind of reinterpreting what we understood about our lives and sort of who we were. And I'm kind of curious if you had a similar experience or if that was kind of less so because you had a suspicion for a long time that your brain worked differently. Well, I mean, uh, it was kind of more difficult than that. At the time, I just thought, um, I'm stupid. I'm not able to, to basically uh, be any good in high school. I think I was among the bottom of my class. Maybe except for math and physics, which I really loved, and then uh, I was kind of okay with. And that kind of basically has been with me for a very long time, maybe until I got accepted to a reasonable college and then uh, went to kind of grad school. And then I actually realized that in things that I'm really deeply passionate about, I can be competitive and actually I can be good at And That was also a very substantial revelation for me. I always thought it's not, it's not, it's not going to be the case. So I think a couple of things that I've learned in this process is that you really have to choose your games, right? You really have to choose what you are uh, kind of good at and what you enjoy because enjoyment and dopamine is a really big part of this, uh, the whole story. If you're doing things that you don't like, if you, you know, if you can't stand project management and you have to do it, uh, it's just not, you wouldn't be able to do it. You would not have enough dopamine in your system, at least without medication, to complete this task and you will be a lot less successful. And uh, kind of, I think knowing that really kind of changed things for me. I stopped doing things that I'm not really good at. I mean, sometimes it's very painful. Sometimes I file taxes two years later, uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but now I have fortunately I have an accountant. But, uh, that was kind of a big revelation. And then second big revelation was that if you can surround yourself with, with the right tools and most importantly with the right people, this whole thing can become much easier. 
like when I first got a chance to work with executive assistant at Amazon, I just realized that the world is so much easier because there are things that would take me hours to do, like, you know, decide on a flight or decide on a hotel or kind of pick, uh, you know, something. It was impossible. Like my biggest challenge uh, my whole life <laughs> anyways, was picking, uh, picking presents for birthdays. Mm. Just kind of this whole idea that you have to spend the whole day figuring out what is the right present is, for me, was unbelievably difficult. It was so much stress. And if you can finally outsource it to someone who actually enjoys it and who is good at it, I think that, first of all, makes your life much easier, but also gives you a chance to spend this mental cycles on something productive other than anxiety and, uh, and depression. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's so well said. Um, there's a few things you you pointed to in there, and as, as somebody who's often kind of gone down paths that weren't really good for me because I thought it was what I was supposed to be doing, or I kind of attached myself to a sort of a social status associated with a certain job, or I thought it was doing good work in the world, but it wasn't. And then it would just be so evident so quickly, and this was pre-diagnosis, that I just like did not have the heart for it. And I didn't have the supports at that time to understand what was happening. But um, I think that's so cool that you talk about that, how when you're when you're surrounded with the right people and then that that energy is just really dynamic and healthy and and wonderful. And you can do great things in that state. Right. Um, or even just be like you don't always have to be doing great things to have value. And that's like one of my sort of core beliefs. But like I do think it's really cool what you talk about that being surrounded with these um, wonderful people that understand how your mind works and can support you uh, is, is helping you to do work that is, is creating value in the world, but also not harming you in the process. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I think also kind of uh, being able to actively seek support would also be very important. Something that I, I didn't, I didn't do in the past and uh, kind of spending your first, you know, 25 years of your life, knowing that you are way below average is sometimes very depressing. And um, it took me a while to realize that it's not the case. It's just the case for things that I'm not really good at. Um, and maybe kind of having some support in that would have made some things uh, easier. I don't know. Uh, so I think having this kind of community around you with people who understand what somebody is like is also really important. But again, back at the place where, where I grew up, it just wasn't the case. Like the word psychiatrist meant something really, really terrible. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I just thought, yeah. Yeah, we had, uh, Robbie wasn't around for this episode, but I had a similar discussion with a guest of ours a couple of weeks ago uh, who comes from India and, you know, just sort of same thing. There's, there's just, you, you just don't talk about anything related to uh, mental health kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, uh, ho hopefully things can, uh, change on that front and, and people can kind of get access to the help that they need. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not sure that I, I'm just looking through my notes here. Uh, oh yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, so I, I, again, really relate to what you were saying there about, uh, finding help where you can, especially with tasks that you don't like. Um, you know, I've, so I've been running a couple businesses for a long time and 
one of them, uh, like there's there's one subtask of that that I absolutely hate. Uh, and you know, if I just if I just had a little bit more money, I would love to hire a person just to do that one task of uh, uh, taking photos and processing photos. I hate. F- I hate photography. I don't want to do it. I'm bad at it, but it's a necessary part of getting my job done. And yeah, it's like, uh, I, I would love to uh, have just enough money to hire people to do the parts of my job that I don't like. And then I get to keep all the fun stuff for myself. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a kind of, you know, if, if, as if there's not already enough reasons to want to be a CEO, that seems like a good one too. <laughs> well, it's surprising that these days on like sites like Apple or Fiverr, you can find people who can, are really good the jobs and it wouldn't cost uh, as much like you can imagine what you can do for five dollars our entire logo for sidekick which will basically we still use was done for five dollars on fiverr.com oh wow <laughs> and, <laughs> and they all kind of loved it uh, so nice well um yeah i don't know that i had a whole lot else that i wanted to touch on robbie did you have anything you wanted to talk about um, I don't think so. Just that um, I'm actually just looking at the browser over here on my other monitor and noticing my my little avatar is a little avocado. Not, I don't know why. I just find that kind of delightful. That's part of like in your settings and <laughs> it's like you can choose a little like vegetable avatar. I don't that's these things delight me. Um, <laughs> it's just like a small little thing. But yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dimitri, did you have anything else that you wanted to uh, talk to us or the audience about? I don't really know. Uh, I think we covered a lot today. Uh, yeah, that's, I think so. Uh, yeah, I think we're good. Great. That's great. Hopefully you'll share the link, your DJ links. And of course, we'll be sharing the link to where you can download the, the browser. Um, do you have any big launches or anything coming up you want uh, folks to know about? Well, it's uh, con- somewhat tangential to our topic. Basically, I think in a month we'll have a browser for Teams where we actually focused a lot on the collaboration aspect. The browsers have been historically a tool for individuals, and no one really thought deeply about what it's like to use a browser as a part of a team or organization. Did you say it was going to be an extension for Teams? Sorry, maybe I didn't understand that. I misunderstood too, like, like yeah, for, for actual teams of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah, I was because I don't like teams. I'm on the record as saying that. So I was like, oh, are you going to make teams better? Because I'd be right into that. And okay, never mind. <laughs> now basically, it's a, it's a version of browser which allows you to collaborate with your uh, teammates, you know, share access, share bookmarks, links, tasks. And that's going to be out, I think, in, in a press in late June. But that's probably as much as I can say about it at this point. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, this this one will be going out June seventh, uh, so it sh- should be a couple weeks ahead of uh, your launch. So. Yep. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. I know the listeners do too. Uh, yeah. Uh, take care of yourself, and uh, hopefully, we'll talk to you soon again. Thanks, Dimitri. Wonderful. Really nice thank talking you. to you. Likewise. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed, holy shit, I have ADHD. Subscribing to and reviewing it on your podcast platform of choice helps more neurodivergent folks find us, as does following and promoting the show on social media. A full list of platforms is on our Anchor page at anchor.fm forward slash holy shit, I have ADHD. While you're there, why not leave us a voicemail? You can also share your thoughts on this episode or your own ADHD experiences with us at, you guessed it, holy shit, I have ADHD at gmail.com or via our social media pages in the episode notes. Bye for now, and hyper-focus on the positive.